Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Happy Thursday. Welcome along to episode 11 of the Howie Games. This week we're talking one of my favourite topics, cricket and a life lived in the spotlight with former Australian captain Michael Clark. Great to have you on board as always. Now, Michael has a new book out at the moment titled My Story, Michael Clark. It's not your average cricket book to say the least. It's in-depth, it's very honest, at times it's controversial and it has ruffled a few feathers along the way. It is a very, very, very interesting read. Take a look at it. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Michael Clark, My Story. Now, I don't know Michael very well. I first chatted to him on air in 2007 for Network 10 at a game of soccer when David Beckham and LA Galaxy came out to play Sydney FC. At that stage, Michael was a cheerful, seemingly happy-go-lucky 26-year-old with a cricketing world at his feet. Fast forward to last week at Crown in Melbourne, it'd be fair to say Michael is a little more wary of the world around him due to his life lived in the spotlight. I sort of feel we're pretty quick in Australia to tear down those who have success, the old tall poppy syndrome. I don't really think it's our greatest national trait, and Michael has certainly been a victim of it. At the heart of it, Michael Clark is just a bloke who loves cricket. He loved playing it, he still does, he loves talking about it. Michael Clark is cricket mad. I'm a big fan. If you're not, maybe you will be after this episode. I hope so. Enjoy. Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Oh, great to welcome to the Howie Games the former Australian captain who has a fantastic book out at the moment, Michael Clark, My Story. Michael Clark, g'day, Clarky. Thanks, Howie. I'm doing well, mate. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Um, uh, you must be selling some books because <laughs> every paper I open, every news <laughs> oh, t- TV I turn on, you've uh, you got some coverage, man. I think the uh, the book publisher's very happy. Oh, I bet they are. It's, yeah, I think it's selling, but... Yeah, look, I guess, you know, you know, I guess through experience and being on the other side, seeing um, so many of my mates write books mm. um, when they retire, but also I've written, this is my fourth book, I've done three of the, the captain's diaries uh, through my career. So you know to a certain extent uh, what comes with writing a book and, and I guess knowing... Uh, I was covering the 35 years of my life. I, I certainly expected that there would be some things that some people people mightn't like as much as others. And, mm. you know, for me, Howie, it's just about honesty. It's for me to have, the, you know, probably the first opportunity in my career that I didn't feel like someone was pulling my shirt to say, don't say that or you probably shouldn't go there. And I thought if I was... When I think about the book, 90% of it I probably shouldn't have put in there if I was worried about it getting creating a headline or somebody taking offence. But so if I was, did you make a conscious decision to put it in there or did it just sort no, of flow I, out I of you? I just wanted to be honest. I yeah, just okay. thought, you know what, if, if, I miss, if I skip topics or don't go there, the readers are going to know. They're going to say, well, he's bullshitted this book, he's left stuff out, mm. um, and I didn't want to do that. If I was going to write an autobiography, I think it had to be the good and the bad through my career. And... I honestly believe I've been really really reflective through the book, self-reflective and really self-critical. So I hope the readers get a really good insight into into that and areas that I think I could have done things a lot better and, and handled situations differently. But I'm proud of it. It's it's my truth. It's my story. And there's always, you know, two sides to every story, mm. but that's that's my side, I guess. I've got to say, I really enjoyed it. Um, and Thanks, it's not man. your typical cricket book where, you know, I went out on the third day and made a hundred. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not that type of book, yeah, which good. is... You, I didn't want that either. Well, I think yeah, you're to so. be congratulated on for that. Thank you. Uh, If all the stuff that's come out in the media... Um, and I just sat down with you and said it's, it's stuff that I don't want to talk about here. I reckon the person you criticise the most is yourself, mate. Yeah. You're pretty harsh on yourself in the book. Yeah, I, I think I – and I think I need to be, certainly through stages in my career. I, I think, like I said, there were situations and things I probably would have liked to – like looking at, at life from where I look from it now. Which uh, is easy. Which is a lot easier said than done. Yeah, exactly right. I, I could have handled things a lot a lot better in certain situations. Um, but, yeah, there was, there's also a lot of stuff that I, I didn't feel – at the time open to talk about. I kept it to myself. I, I, I tried to protect the people close to me um, in not giving information. I tried to protect the team in Cricket Australia by not biting back at things that were said about me. And mm. um, 
Yeah, like I say, I didn't write the book to try and have a go at anyone or get my side across. It wasn't about that. It was more, you know, it's about my journey, the 35 years of my life and how important cricket's been in that and all the great people I've been lucky enough to play alongside. And, you know, I get it, Howie. I've been around long enough. I know that stuff's not going to make the headlines. Yep. I, I know what sells. Um, and unfortunately, at the moment in, in our society, it's the negative stuff. So it's the, if you can try and make a one-on-one personal issue with someone, then that is going to make a headline in a newspaper. And, and again, I'm only giving my truth and my side to the story. Mitchell Johnson or Shane Watson or Caddo, they, they have their own sides as well, and, and I respect their opinion. If they disagree with me, I'm, I'm cool with that. The thing that really comes out in the book to me, Clarkie, is, and I guess you should understand it, but is how much you love cricket. Like yeah, that, that's the thing. And there's one tiny line in it. Um, I was a hopeless cricketer, but I was the same as you. It was like Friday night. You wake up Friday morning. Jeez, I hope it's not raining. And uh, can you play cricket? There's a thing you said to me about you got a pair of, I think they're Puma Sheffields. Yeah. And how spikes. big a day. And, and oh. I remember the same thing. Yeah. Dad taking me to get spikes for a game of cricket. And it made me smile because it was like, oh, as much as this bloke's achieved, he just absolutely bloody loves cricket. Nah, it's... Um it will always be in my blood, you know. My grandfather loved, loves cricket as much as anyone I've ever met in my life. You know, my dad's 63 years of age. He's still playing mm. park cricket Is he? What's mates. he bring to the table? Mate, apart from knocking off any bat that I scored a Test 100 <laughs> with, not much else. Right. But he can't run. His knees are buggered. His back's no good, but he loves it. You Sounds know? like you. So, yeah, it's exactly right, <laughs> except he's 63. I'm 35. <laughs> But, you know, it, so it is. It's, it's, it's in my blood and I will forever be grateful. And this is easy to say, but I mean it. The game owes me nothing. I owe it everything. I would hate to think where I would be in life without the game of cricket. Mm. And, and, and I guess I've, you know, I, I, it's the simplest things, but that new bat, the new pair of gloves, the Puma Sheffield shoes, the, you know, to go to the indoor sports centre and, and train every day. As a kid, that's all I wanted. I love that so much. And, and I guess that probably, you know, my sister was the same with sport in general, whether it was athletics, swimming, netball, um, triathlons. As she got older, she always and still has, you know, such a passion and love for, for sport. So it's in our family, and I don't think that'll ever change. And I still go to the gym every day. And Kylie, my wife, who's a fitness fanatic as well, mm. but she says to me, babe, have a day off. You can't train seven days every single week but if I don't I notice that I haven't trained get edgy. I, I'm angry yeah. I'm frustrated I yeah. get tired easier so it's like the the fitness or the sporting um, activity you do on the day is what you know that starts my day off and that's it's always been a part of my life yeah I hear that and I understand that and my, my I'm older than you um, my first cricket memory is uh, AB and Tomo I was watching in Perth in that famous test match when they needed 70 odd and got it down <laughs> and, and Miller and Tavaray and they didn't win that's my yeah. first cricket memory yeah. um, you're younger than me what's your first cricket memory whether it's oh. sup- having a hit yourself or listening on the radio watching on the telly I've got a lot of special young memories when I was a kid so trying to emulate you know whoever was successful that day on the television yep. to go to the backyard or the front yard or the cul-de-sac and try and be that batsman or bowler <laughs> whether it was you know I loved Viv and Richie Richardson, Ambrose and Walsh running into bowl. But then even like trying to have the, the back lift and pick up of Booney or AB, you know, I'd try and bat left-handed because AB. AB was batting left-handed. But the one memory that um, that sticks in my mind and probably because I idolised him as a player was Slats. Michael Slater scoring that first 100 in England mm. and taking down Darren Goff in that first over and uh, Phil Defreitas and, you know, I just Phil think... Phil Defreitas. I know. It's, it, it, <laughs> Kissing his helmet. Yeah, well, you know, I kissed my helmet. Every 100 I scored for Australia or yeah. New South Wales, I kissed my helmet and it was. It was because that's what my idol did. That's what Slats did and, you know, there's a picture on my wall of Michael Slater as a young boy and, and, and I wanted to, you know, I loved his aggression but I also loved loved Slats' defence. When he was at his, deba- at his best, mm. his defence was as good as any batsman in the world. And, you know, my probably, the, you know, the one memory, like I say, that sticks in my mind the most is, is watching Michael Slater belt attacks around right. the park. Yeah, he's a fantastic player. So when, when do you play your first game of 
cricket? When do you, you get out of the backyard and put the whites on and play a very first game? I was seven years of age. I was. Uh, I went down. So we had a local park, Shell Park. Our club was Woodlands Park Youth Club, which yep. was walking distance from the house. We used to go to that park on a daily basis before mum and dad bought the indoor sports centre, kick the footy, soccer ball, have a hit in the nets, whatever it was. The under-10s, that was junior cricket when I first started. The youngest was under-10s. So I think I just turned seven. I was down the park watching these the bigger boys train and I said to dad I'd, I want to play you know why can't I play with them and my old man was always worried that because I was such a small kid mm. um, you know this bat- batting on synthetic the ball would bounce so high so if it wasn't a hard volley or a full toss it would generally bounce over my head and mm. trying to bowl the full length of the pitch my dad thought at that stage as a seven year old boy I couldn't do that until you can do that you can't play with these bigger kids and then the coach Jason Wilton um, who was at recently I, I invited Jace to my book launch it was great to see him Jace came over because he saw me batting in the nets and said he knew my dad and obviously that local area everyone knew everybody he said Les let your boy play with this, you know. We're sure to play on the weekend. Let him come down and play. And I heard my dad say, he can't even bowl the full length of the pitch, Jay, so he can't play. So I remember running. So we were in the nets. I ran to the centre. We, we had a synthetic pitch in the middle of Shell Park, the ground, grabbed the ball and steamed in as hard as I could. Thought I was a big, fast <laughs> Mike Whitney left armour. <laughs> Mike Whitney. Bowled this ball. It went the whole length of the pitch. And I just stood there looking at Dad and Jason. And Jason, thank God, looked at my dad and said, is just prove you're wrong there. So then I started. They let me play the next week. I think I played about seven or eight games that year. Did you make any runs first knock? I can't remember my first knock. I scored 13 runs in that season. Right. How many so, innings did you have, Clarky? Oh, well, I played seven games, so okay. there's seven. Well, there might have a few red inks in there or <laughs> Mate, not. I could not. <laughs> I could not hit the ball to the fielder, <laughs> let alone past the fielder. So my job, and still, when I played my first game at first grade as a 16-year-old, I was still such a tiny kid. My job was exactly the same then. It was... You know, I was batting lower down the order. I was a left-arm ortho who batted at eight or nine. My job was to block the other end, not get out, so my teammates could score runs for our team score. Mm-hmm. And again, that's how I—that's how I grew up. A lot of the teams I played, I was always the youngest um, and the smallest. So my job was to okay, value on your wicket, don't get out, and our team would would score more runs around me. Um, and that was my memories of my first year as such a, you know, a seven-year-old boy, such a small little kid to just don't get out. And I loved batting as well. That's why it didn't bother me if I got runs. It was more just don't get out, don't get out, don't get out. And your old man, he's a, he's a, he's a big part of the book, so he's obviously yeah. a big part of your story and a big part of your life. He was the one that sort of early doors was coaching you and giving you the tips. And what a wonderful way to spend yeah. time with your old man than yeah. playing sport together. Yeah, him and my grandfather were probably the two guys that – um, that helped me or were always there for me if I wanted to have a bat or have a bowl or play classic catches in the pool or whatever it was. And, um, you know, you don't know at the time, but I look back now and think my old man was working full-time. Both mum and dad worked full-time to um, to allow... It wasn't, sister, a, it wasn't a rich household, to be fair to say, financially. Yeah, I think that's... Um, I, I think we're a long way from, yep. from rich, that's for sure. We, we struggled, but in the same breath, mum and dad worked as hard as they could to allow us to have the things that we needed. There was no luxuries, but it was what we required. They were... You know they were kind enough to to provide, so which you don't appreciate as a kid. Now you will because yeah. now you've got a little one, and you'll start to appreciate. Oh my god, the amount well, of time you, you put into, and them. you don't realise how expensive no. everything is. You know, I, I until I was probably, you know, seventeen or eighteen, I, I I could never get the anger out of my head that my mum would never buy me that Mambo T-shirt I wanted, like a thirty-dollar T-shirt. Mum was like, "No, I, I'm not going to buy you. I could buy you one for seven bucks. I'm not going to buy you a T-shirt for thirty. If you want that, then mow the lawn, go yeah. and umpire indoor cricket, um, help dad with the milk run, go and you know do the paper run, do whatever you got to do to save your own money. Yeah, and then go buy your T-shirt. And I used to house fuming that she wouldn't buy me this t-shirt and um you know you wanted a pair of nike shoes but we would get a pair of shoes from payless and oh, i was so embarrassed i hated that but you look back oh, like i say it takes a few years before you realize how expensive things are you yeah. start making your own money and paying your own bills exactly now you get it and yeah i think that um i think those values and and that willingness to make us both kids, my sister and I, work as hard as we could from a young age to earn our own money is something I've always cherished. And, and that's probably why I've been fortunate through my career to to save my money and know the value of a dollar. You know, I think it's really important. And that's what I hope to educate my daughter on. She's going to, you know, she's going to grow up in a house that um, her mum and dad have worked exceptionally hard 
to be able to save and um, and buy, but I want her to realise the value of a dollar from a very young age. I want her to know that she needs to get out there and do her own work to earn her own money mm. to chase her dreams. I think it's really important because Kylie, my wife, was exactly the same the way she was brought up. Her family probably had a, a lot more money than mine, but she still had to work for everything she was she was given. And I think those values are really important, especially from a young age. But when that money comes your way, I, as a 23-year-old, 99% of the population aren't earning enough money to buy fancy cars. Yeah. And I reckon if we were... We'd all buy fancy cars. Yeah. Like we, we genuinely yeah. would, Clarky. Well, we'd, we'd buy fancy cars. You'd buy, some, you'd buy whatever your passion is. Yes. If it's a, you know, if it's a boat, you'd buy a boat. If yeah. it's a, if it's a car, you'd buy a car. Yeah. And I laughed about your first wheels. You said it was a what was it? Nineteen eighty one Holden Gemini. Gemini. And Lime I respected green. that. I wish I kept it. Jeez, I wish I kept eighteen hundred dollars. I wanted one that was two two. My dad wouldn't lend me the extra four hundred bucks. I was fuming. I had right. to put it in dad's name because the insurance cost too much money. Me as a registered driver. Um, yeah, uh, and I, actually, I think I, only in, I think I insured it third party. I don't think we could afford full right. insurance, but it was every week without fail, minimum once a week. It was on the front lawn. I'd wash it. I absolutely so that, loved that, it. That's your passion. So without being a knob about it, when you've got the money and you can go and buy a nice car, which you obviously did, yeah. and as I say, without being, a, without being a dick about it, do you walk in and think, how good's this that I'm going well at something that I can move up from that 981 car and buy something beautiful that I love? Look, I, 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 Howie, I always love the materialistic things. I've always cared about the clothes I've worn or the house I live in or the car I drive. And even if I couldn't afford it, mm. my goal was to afford it. You know, I bought I bought a flash car, but I had that car on my wall from six years of age. So what was it like when you walked in and handed over the money and they gave you keys to that flash well, car? Well, I didn't walk in to buy that car. I walked in to buy a different car. Right. And then in the showroom was my dream. Which was a... It was a Ferrari 360 Spider. Well, who doesn't want a Ferrari, And I was honest. like... And I was with my batting coach at that time. And I was like, Neil, I'm not buying this car. I want that car. And he was like, mate can you afford it? And I said, I don't know, I'm going to find out. So my mum looked after my money. <laughs> okay. My mum, my whole career, took care of my finances. And like I say, my mum was very tight. She is the world, still is the world's biggest tight ass. So how's that go when so you So I ring mum? mum and said, mum, can I afford to buy this car? My mum was like, nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> what are you talking about, a car? Because my mum and dad never, ever cared about cars. We had the bright yellow Nissan Pulsar. We had the, the off-purple Holden Astra. The purple? Oh, my God. Dad had a... What, I'd, practice my sister and i practiced before we got our license in this ford falcon white ford falcon that felt like a bus but cars to them they could never comprehend why i love cars so much mm. so when i said to mum this is the price can i afford it can you just you know i don't want your opinion because i already know the answer to that you're saying i'm an idiot given but can you tell me if i can afford it financially and as soon as i heard half of a yes i was like right i want this car and i want to drive it out today and two hours later i was sitting in my dream um, and driving to my house with the biggest smile on my face. It wasn't funny. Which I reckon's fantastic, mate. And I think um, in some ways I, I look at what happens in American sport and the best thing about this podcast is we can jump around all over the yeah. place and just chat. I look at American athletes and American sport and it's so much about the individual. And for whatever reason in Australia we frown on that and I was – there's an upcoming episode of the Howie Games with Greg Norman. Yeah. And I, I spoke to him the yesterday. Great shark. The, and I love yeah, him. He's a great man. I love him, yeah. And, and we were talking about the tall poppy syndrome in Australia, and I said it's the, the one thing about Australia that, I, that I'm not proud about is the way we approach it. If you were an American athlete, you're stock standard. You're driving a nice yeah. car. You're wearing nice clothes. You're worried about your look. Um, you're stock standard. Here, for whatever reason, we belt people because of that. Which you would have learnt at a young oh, age, I guess. I'm still learning. Yeah. <laughs> How you know what though? I, wish it wasn't I, like that I, I think our greatest strength is our greatest weakness, though. So I I completely understand, and to an ex- extent, I, I definitely agree with mm. what you're saying. I, I I wish it was more that we we idolised our um, our sports people or our successful actors. people. Our, yes, that's that's the right wording. Our successful people, people that work hard to achieve what they want to achieve. And there's a lot... We are very lucky in this country. There's so many people, a lot that don't even get spoken about. Yeah. A lot of people that are successful in their chosen field. But we are very middle class. So whether I earn uh, $150 a week or I earn $10 million a week, mm. we can go to the same restaurant. We can drink the same alcohol. 
we can go to the same beach. In Australia, we are very lucky. We are very middle class. And I think that's our greatest strength. That's what I love more about Australia than any other country that I've been lucky enough to tour in. Mm. The gap between the rich and the poor is nowhere near as big in Australia as it is in somewhere like India, um, the West Indies, um, you know, England, or all, all different, South Africa, all different parts of the world. And I love that we are all the same because we are. We choose different things. We are different personalities. We, we make different choices. But at the end of the day, if um, my father's going to get diagnosed with cancer or Ricky Ponning's going to get diagnosed with cancer or um, James Packer's going to get diagnosed, it doesn't matter how much money you got or how successful you've been. Mm. God doesn't choose that. It's if you're getting it, you're getting it. So I, I love how we are middle class and we can all live the same lifestyle to a certain extent. But then I completely understand because I, I guess I've been on the other side mm. where I, I just wish we would we wouldn't hit our build our athletes up or build our successful people up so much and then knock them so far down. You came in here today and I was reading the paper and you said, oh, jeez, <laughs> you laughed. You said, shit, am I in the paper today? Um, which, again, um, I deal with a lot of sports people that, that have that same approach. What, what's it like? We sort of really haven't talked about cricket yet. But anyway, what, what's it like um, having your life splashed across the paper, whether it's true, not true, partly true? And I'm not talking specifically, I'm talking generally. Yeah, it's not, not fun at all. There's, is, no, is da- it, there's no doubt it, about it. What happens when you go and you get your paper or it's on the where it may be and you look at it in your front page? Yeah, I, I hate it. Right. Honestly, I've never felt comfortable with the, the fame or the celebrity side of being an Australian cricketer. I get it and I understand that it's part and parcel mm. of playing sport at the highest level these days. Um, it's not just about what you do on the field. There's both. It's off the field as well. So I respect that. But I didn't know that until I started playing cricket for Australia. I never, I never had media training. I've never had public speaking training. I've never had social media education or, or media education. So until I actually was there playing for Australia, I didn't know that all this stuff came with it. And um, I think if it was all, if it was based on my performance, how I played cricket, I think I was I, I dealt with that a lot easier. I respected that fair core. I didn't make any runs or I dropped two catches or my bowling was poor and I cost us the game. Fair core. That but stuff's was, only on the back page, though. That doesn't get you on the front page, that well, stuff. Well, and, yeah, a lot of the time you have to perform extremely bad to even make it, to get in there. So I was always fine with that. But the, the, the other stuff was, was always uh, tough to accept and acknowledge and deal with. And, and I think it took me a long time to accept that I was different to what the perception of an Australian cricketer or an Australian cricket captain should look like yeah. and be like. And I think I got to about 27 or 28 <laughs> and accepted that and then I was so much more at ease with what was said about me or written about me. And maybe through some tough experiences, maybe that made me a lot more comfortable. So now, for example, on the book tour, there's, you know, of course there's going to be criticism. When you make tough decisions as a leader, some people are going to like that, some people aren't. I talk about that in the book, so everyone's going to have their own opinion. I now don't even buy – like, I would never go and buy a paper now. I wouldn't spend the money. But if I'm at a hotel, beautiful hotel, like yep. I'm in now, very fortunate, and there's a paper, I'll look, I'll read, I'll see something about myself, I'll read it, I'll see the headline, and I'll turn the page. But when I was in that bubble playing cricket for Australia, any time you read something about yourself, if it was negative, it was like you would read it in bold. You would see the word so much bigger than everybody else. But it took me to retire or walk away from the game to respect that, you know what, you turn the page and get on with life. People have got so much more to worry about than worry about you. So don't take it to heart so much or don't take it so personally. Just cop it on the chin. Sun comes up tomorrow. I laughed in your book, mate, when you said uh, when you first got picked for Australia – you weren't expecting to do it. it was a one day and you were rocking with a pretty rude haircut at the time. It was the first thing that popped into your mind. Like all the things oh, no. to oh, pop no. into your mind oh. when you're about to fulfil your oh. life's dream is the way your hair looks? Mate. What if, was the haircut? If you, if you had that haircut, you right. would have felt the same. Right. It what was, was it? horrendous. So I dyed it all white mm. and I shaved it. Right, nice. It looked like a tennis ball. <laughs> I could not believe I had some of the worst haircuts in the world looking back on photos going when I was writing this autobiography <laughs> when they were showing me photos. I was like... I cannot put that in Don't there. Put that one in. Surely Don't I didn't look that bad. No, I didn't put make something that. in him. I didn't make that mistake. But they're all in there. Don't worry about that. That photo's in there as well. And um, yeah, it was it was such a special time. Um, 
as a young man to I was in I just landed in Coffs Harbour well, on our way to play South Australia in a in a mercantile mutual game at that stage um, and our team manager come and said Michael you got to fly back to Sydney you're going to Adelaide to play your first one day international uh, or be in the squad I didn't know I was playing at that time and I'll never forget walking into it was the Holiday Inn in Hindley Street had your own room um, and the rooms were quite big as well. So you had your bed and then there was like a little lounge area on the side. I was playing at New South Wales where you're rooming with someone. Mm. You bunk in together with two single beds. <laughs> um, and there was a big green bag on the floor, Cricket Australia Cricket Coffin. And I opened the bag and pulled out my clothes. And to see your name and your number on that Australian jersey, I tried every single bit of clothing on. Yes, to check if it fit me, but more to turn around and see your name on the back of an Australian jersey was like... I cannot believe... As it should be. This is happening. With a cap on. I wouldn't take my cap off. I had my cap on the whole time. Um, Yeah, so, you know, my dream was definitely to play test cricket and receive that baggy green cap, but I loved one-day cricket just as much. So to get your name and your number on your shirt, and number 49 I was at at that time in my first series, um, being the 149th one-day player to play for Australia, it was just, you know, and, and, and I don't say I dreamt of it, for the sake of it. I closed my eyes at night, falling asleep with my cricket bat beside me, and I dreamt of playing cricket for Australia. More of Michael Clark in a moment. A quick preview of next week's episode of the Howie Games, and I loved it. Okay, being my podcast, I'm biased, I'll admit that. Fair enough. However, the coach of the Socceroos for an hour? Yes, please. Ange Postacoglu. The, the goal now is to win one because I just think, I mean, you spoke about, you know, Cathy Freeman and, and I, I, I kind of related also to the America's Cup. There was a time where you say, well, you know, no other country can really win an America's Cup. Mm. Australia certainly can't win an America's Cup. I can imagine Cathy Freeman as a young Aboriginal girl. No one told her you could win an Olympic gold medal. It's just out of the world, out of this world. And I think the World Cup's the same. I think, you know, this, we sit here and we say we can't win a World Cup. Well, we can, but imagine what it would do for us as a nation <laughs> if we did win it. That's Ange Postacoglu next Thursday on the Howie Games. Back to Michael Clark. So when you go into those change rooms, I remember um, when we started the Big Bash and the boss said, oh, we've signed out Ricky Ponting, Adam Gilchrist, Mark Warren, Damien Fleming here. You've got to come and have a meeting and meet these blokes. And I'm like, are you freaking serious? <laughs> and, I, mate, I still feel like that now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I sit next to Ricky and Gilly and... I still find it hard three or four years in to think, oh, geez, I'm a bit of a fraud here with these no, guys. Brilliant. What's it like when you go into that dressing room for the first time and the Pontings and the Gilchrist and the Haydens and the Langers? You know, this is these are some of the best cricketers to ever play the game. Yeah, yeah. I was blessed. The guys I was lucky enough to to play with at the start of my career. What you don't get better mentors. You can't you can't buy better coaches. Mm. Um, but you're petrified. There's no doubt about Are it. You? Oh my God! I was. Yeah. I remember that game. So in Adelaide, Michael Bevan, who I'd played a few games with at New South Wales, and Nathan Bracken, who I'd played a lot more cricket with, they took me across the road to the Thai restaurant um, to have something to eat, to eat that night. The game being the next day, and I hadn't played against you know eighty percent of the the boys in that team they're all australian legends i mm. I'd only watched them on television so um Gilly was captain of my my first o d i and my first test match actually um just to walk into that change room and the the tradition and and how the Australian system works is the senior players will walk into the change room and sit in their seat. So where you sit in your first game is where you sit your whole career at every ground around the world. So if I travel, if I go to Lords, I know where my seat is. If I go to um, Cape Town, I know where my seat is. Cool. Adelaide Oval, I walk in for my first game. Everybody takes their seat. And then I ask permission. There's a spare seat there. Can I sit there? And the boys go, yeah, no one's sitting there, of course. So where you sit, though, in Adelaide in that first game, that's my seat for my whole career. And, you know, it's it was little traditions like that that – I absolutely love being the youngster. I had to carry the stereo around. So to our next game, I carry the jukebox. <laughs> um, we come into the change room after the day's play. Big esky full of beers. I'm the youngster. I go around. You want a beer? You want a beer? Hand the beers out. You know, that was the way I grew up around my dad's change rooms as well. I was, you know, I was ball boy for uh, my cousin's rugby league team, Burwood United. So I would do the same. I was the youngster in my dad's cricket change room watching these guys play. I would do the same. I now get to the Australian cricket team. And and I think I loved that part of my life more than anything else. Being the youngster in the team and thinking you have 11, 10, 
or 11 or 12 or 13, it depends how many players are on the tour, big brothers was the most special feeling in the world. So when you get picked to play a test match, and I can still remember it was on pay TV because in India. Yeah. So I didn't have pay TV, so I had to go to a pub to watch it. And it was like, you know, it was always, how's the new bloke going to go? And you smashed a mate and made 150-odd. Yeah. Um, and might have got a couple of wickets as well. Yeah. Not in the first game. I don't yeah. think you bowled in the first right. game. He got, he in got the five la- for a yeah, one in point, the, didn't you? In the last game of the series in Mumbai, anyone would have got five for. Right, I'm not sure about that. Horrible anyway. conditions, yeah. Um, is there one memory that sticks out from your first test match? Any type of memory that, that, that sticks in your mind? Yeah, I think I think Warney presenting me on the ground in Bangalore with my baggy green um, is is one that will forever stick in my mind because I don't remember a word Warney said. So normally in a presentation, the whoever's presenting the cap will talk for five minutes about the value, you know, value in the baggy green and what you need to do to. Um, you know, to re- continue to represent it, the history, the tradition, and congratulate you on, on getting your opportunity. But I don't remember one word Warney said because all I was doing was staring at that cap in his hand thinking, <laughs> just give me that cap, Warney. I like this. I can't believe I'm going to play my first test match. And, you know, I think I think Alan Border, Mark Taylor, Steve Waugh, these guys deserve a lot of credit for building up the baggy green so much that as a young kid watching, it was it was like, my God, how special is that cap? You know, and um, the other memory when I walked off the field, Michael Slater, my idol, was commentating that test match. And I remember, you know, seeing Slats when I walked. I had my family there. I flew my family over and saw them. And then when I saw Slats and and gave him a big hug, that was, you know, that was extremely special to know that my idol was was there watching um, that first test match as well. What's the difference in mindset between maybe a year, like, is it, 2012 where every time I turned on the telly you were batting and you're batting mate and you're making 300s and 200s and what what's the difference between walking out to bat with your mindset like that and walking out to bat when you're in a lean trot which didn't happen too regularly in your career but any elite sportsman it goes wrong at times for sure yeah Uh, and it happened when you got you obviously got dropped yeah when I got dropped as well yeah yeah um, I don't feel 2012 was any different in regards to, um, you know, when you start your innings, you always start on zero. Mm. But what I did much better then than probably any other year was when I got a start, I had the mental discipline and, and physical fitness to be able to go on and make a, a big score and that hunger inside me to say, okay, I've had a lot of low scores through my career. Now I've got to 50, I want 100. Now I've got to 100, I want a double 100. Now I've got to 200, I want a 300. And, you know, I just had that hunger inside me to maximise that time. You know, I always respected the game enough to know that it's the highs and lows. Mm. And, and when you're going well grab hold of that I would always say ride that wave as long as you possibly can because the other side of that wave um, is not a nice feeling and and I think probably getting dropped as a young player allowed me to experience that very early in my career and that that made me value that that good year more so than than I probably would have if I hadn't had that experience Um, but it feels like when you're not performing or when you find it hard to make runs when you face up to the bowler it feels like there's 25 fielders out there and you can't get you can't hit the ball in the gap you can't make a run when you're batting at your best you don't even notice where the fielders are it's you versus for me anyway it was me versus the seam on the ball and that's how close you're watching the ball. You actually can see the seam on the ball coming down to you. And mm. through my cricket academy now, when I talk to boys and girls, that's what I try and get them to focus on, that there's a big difference between saying watch the ball and actually watching or looking for the seam on the ball because when you're not batting well, you'll probably see a you know a square behind the bowler or an area behind the bowler's hand that you watch. Mm-hmm. When you're creaming and when you're on 50 or 100, you are actually staring at that ball. You can tell with reverse swing, for example, you can see what side's shiny and what side's rough. You're watching the ball that close. And um, I think that's probably the main difference between being in good form and, and bad form. So for those of it is that will never achieve it, that love cricket as much as you do, what's it like when you make 100 for your country? Like you hit the ball into the gap, you come back for the second, and then yeah, that, you're 100. That's that's. The probably probably for a cricket uh, for a batsman that's the milestone that you cherish the most. Funny, isn't it? Because ninety eight. Oh, yeah, I know. Three runs more. I know. Well, even when you get fifty, you get a half century. You know, that's still special, yeah. but you don't value it. It's like 
that's the entree, that's a start. But and I and it's funny because I think of making two hundred or three hundred. It felt no different. There was no more celebration in me mm. than when I made a hundred. Making the hundred is that special achievement. Um, and it's so hard, you know. I think of of Ricky Ponning. Uh, who was the best Australian batsman I ever played with. He made 41, I think it was, 41 test hundreds in 168 test matches. So if he's the best that I ever saw, there's a lot of bad days in there. Yeah, there is. To only make – well, I say only make 41. Me as a cricketer or someone who's been lucky enough to play for so long, 41 hundreds is unbelievable, 41 test hundreds. What a freak. But when you think about 168 test matches, so double it in regards to the amount of innings you bat and you only get 41 hundreds. Mm. So cricket teaches you to deal with tough times. There's no doubt about it. It teaches you to deal with failure. It teaches you to deal with, you know, working your backside off and not achieving what you want to achieve. So you've got to keep working and working and working. But when you get that 100, as a batsman, it makes all that hard work and the failure all worth its while. When did it become Clarky? <sighs> Reading your book, I, uh, there's two things that I found. Well, one thing that I found surprising was that we have this image in our head that the Australian cricket team go out, win games of cricket, drink beers afterwards, and are all best mates. Which, when I actually go back and think about it, you know, I've played footy and cricket and in team sports, and yeah, there's some blokes that you don't really spend time with, so yeah. it makes sense. But, but when did it go from becoming 100% positive? to some negatives creeping in in a general way to being an Australian cricketer and in an Australian cricket team? I think it's always been there. I think yeah. every team I played with, there was definitely... Um, a fraction is not the right word. There was different groups yep. in every team I which played with. Which I guess with. makes sense, really. Yeah, which I think you think of any sport that... Well, I'll speak for myself. Any sport that I've played, it's been exactly the same. I played footy as a kid. It was yeah. the same. We played but when it's the Australian up. cricket team, we think 11 yeah. supermen, yeah. best mates. Well, picture this. Picture you're in your footy team or your cricket team or whatever it is as a, as a youngster, and, yet, and then you live together every single day for 10 months of the year. I think about my sister, who I love to bits, mm. or my mum and dad, who I couldn't love anymore, or my mm. wife. If I live every single day with them, we're going to argue. Yeah. We're going to have disagreements. Yeah, Let alone point. if you are fighting for the same position. And well, you know, you got a you got a squad of sixteen players. Only eleven can play, and we all love cricket to be a team sport. I think it's very important. The common goal is very important in a, in, in a cricket team. That's how you have individual success, I believe, if you put the team first. But when you're not in the – it's easy for me to say that if I'm in the 11. Mm. If I'm 12, 13, 14, 15, 16th player, don't tell me there's not somewhere inside where you're thinking, well, if he happens to get a duck today and he gets dropped, it means tomorrow I get my opportunity. Um, and that's the greatest challenge in a team sport. I think you have to find a way, and it took me a long time to – to be able to do this, to find a way to look forward and enjoy your mate's success as much as you enjoy yours. And that's hard when you can't get into the 11, but I think if you can get yourself into that position, and again, for me personally, it helped my cricket so much more. And you realise over time as well, you can't, I can't make 100 without my partner at the other end. Mm. Um, Glenn McGrath can't get five wickets if I don't take the catches or the Gilly doesn't take the catches or, you know, um, we can't win the game if Andrew Simons doesn't get the run out. It does take the whole team, but it takes time to work that out, I believe. Last week's episode of the Howie Games featured a two-time Melbourne Cup winning jockey. What's the Melbourne Cup, Pickle? It's the richest two-mile handicap in the world, Penguin. It's a 3,200-metre race for three-year-olds and over. I'm older than three. Can I go in it? No, silly. It's a horse race, not a penguin race. Well, anyway, Jim Cassidy was on last week. The pumper. I did. That, that, that was a good story. Did I had you to, truly do that? I dude? truly did, yeah. I, 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 underbelly style. Underbelly style. Rolled in cash. At 20, pumper was rolling in money. <laughs> I got I got the grey nurses the hundred dollar bills oh, the big cha- changed into twenties <laughs> so and, and my mate out. said what are you doing that for I said I'll show you so we got back to the hotel room pump took all his gear off got the Melbourne Cup whip tipped all the money on the bed <laughs> and for one hour I was literally just rolling in cash <laughs> I love the work of the pumper time to go back to Clarkie. 
you said in your book, which um, yeah, it did surprise me, you, and as I said at the start, you're more critical of yourself than anyone in the book, and you said you were, I don't know the adjective you used, but you said you weren't a good vice-captain of Ricky Ponting. Yeah, I didn't think I was a good vice-captain of Punter, and, and, and I think, you know, Gilly was his vice-captain that I watched and grew up with, and Gilly was a magnificent vice-captain. Why? Probably because the perception was he never wanted to be captain. Right. So I think that was a good start for Gilly. It allowed him the freedom to be the person he was. Gilly was also a very good man manager of a team and got on with just about everyone or tried to get on with, with everyone. He was, you know, I loved Gilly. I still love Gilly. I think he's a great guy and, and I've always had a really good relationship with him. Very honest relationship, but, but a very good one. So when you were vice captain, did you want to be captain? I had no ambition at all to ever be vice captain or captain of Australia. Right. But the perception was, and I understand this now, the perception was because I think, and maybe it was more than this, but I think it was naturally because of just the age difference between Ricky and I, it made sense for the media Mm. and the public to assume that I was going to take his spot. Yep. Let alone before I'd captained a game or before anybody saw if I was, I was any good at it. I think just that the age difference, people just assumed that was the case. But I would say openly that I never had a contract. I never had a Cricket Australia contract that said, you are the next captain. Mm. So until I got that job, I never expected to captain Australia. I never expected to be vice captain of Australia. And then I was so scared to tread on Ricky's toes by, you know, especially after I did captain a few games... Um, and then the media in particular, all the commentators would talk my captaincy style up. I thought Ricky was taking offence to that or would take offence to that. So I didn't want to feel like, from his perspective, I didn't want him to think that I was after his job because it wasn't the case at all. And I did. I, I had enough people tell me that he felt that way. Um, and that hurt me because I was always, um, I always idolised you know, I, I, like I say, he's the greatest Australian batsman I ever played with and I loved watching him bat and train and go about his work. So, you know, it was hard for me to to deal with and, and accept that um, that he would think that, that I would be trying to, you know, take his job. And, and I, I remember speaking to Punter about it a number of times and saying, mate, you know, when I got dropped in 2006, the selectors... Um, we're gonna, we'll do, would have done their job and come and told me I've been dropped. But I said to Ricky, halfway through that game, when I made no runs in the second innings, I said, Pun, I, I understand and respect where I'm at, but if I'm going to get dropped, can you come and tell me? Because you're my captain. You know, I had that much respect for him. And um, I just feel like I, yeah, I, I, I don't believe I needed to be vice captain to to do the next stage to be captain of Australia. I think I would have learned a lot more if I wasn't vice-captain, and I think I played my best cricket, one or the other, be one of the boys with no leadership or be the leader. In between, and probably sums up my personality and my life, grey never suited me. I'm black or white. I call a spade a spade and I get it wrong or I get it right. When I captain the team, I want to win or I accept we lose. I I was never in the middle, and I feel like being vice-captain was your greatest strength had to be being able to please everyone and be in the middle and and soften things and be caring and um, understand and listen and you know that I, I wasn't very good at that so I, I think I let I let Ricky down as vice captain and, and I wish if I had time again that um, you know I, I don't think I needed to be vice captain to still captain I think I was learning just as much under Ricky as a normal player as I said, you're really, really honest in the book and people read the book and I couldn't recommend it more highly as a, as a sports book or just about a book about life in general because it's more than about cricket. You're really honest, really honest and it was really hard to read about what happened to Philip Hughes yeah. um, and I can't imagine what it's been for the last few weeks with the coronial inquest and, and it comes back again to the rest of the country. It becomes back to the forefront of our mind. Reading the book, I don't think it has left the forefront of your mind. That's the impression I gained from reading the book. Yeah. It must have been hard to talk about and write about, I would have thought, that stuff. Yeah, well, I, I think um, the two hardest things I had to write about through my book was obviously Philip Hughes being one and, and then what my family went through as well and you know, within that six-month period of... Um, grandmother dying, grandfather having heart attack and stroke, sister nearly dying, dad getting diagnosed with cancer again, and, and my sister uh, and my mum having a brain hemorrhage. Which you kept under wraps, mate. I never, so I I never told anybody. About I any never told my, my teammates. Right. Excuse me. I never told... I never told a soul because I was so protective and I didn't want... Mm. I didn't want a weakness. I didn't want my teammates to 
be worried about me. It was my job as captain to be worried about them or I didn't want the opposition to know that something was going on outside of cricket or I didn't want the selectors to think, well, maybe you shouldn't be captain or maybe you shouldn't play this game because you need a break mentally. I didn't want any of that. I didn't want people to feel sorry for me either. Same thing with the, with the Husey stuff. I guess when I think about the, the inquest, that's why I couldn't go back to the inquest. That's why I couldn't be there and be around it because I couldn't go back to what happened, take myself back to what happened with Philip. And um, I think writing the book was the best thing for me mentally to get go into a room like this where we are, be on my own and get everything off my chest about how I felt at that time about my family, how I, feel, how I felt at that time about Philip because... I still find it very hard to talk about it, to be honest. Howie, I, I, I get I get really emotional, um, and it's still so raw. You know, the Husey stuff feels it. It's not. It feels um, like I, I don't know what's happened. Of course, I'm, I'm aware it's happened. I, I get it, but it it doesn't still sit comfortably in any way. Like I still have his number in my phone. I, I don't. I don't know when that transition will come. Where. You, I, I completely accept what happened, you know, and, and not, I'm not saying someone's fault, it's more because of our relationship, you know, a lot of our relationship was based around phone, text, uh, conversation, because he was playing for South Australia, I was on the road with Australia, mm. and then on tour, we spent a lot of time together, but it just feels like, you know, we just haven't spoken for a couple of months, although it's been nearly two years, but it feels, it just feels like that, and he'll text me or ring me, and... That's why I think writing in the book allowed me to, to get my feelings across how I've always wanted to, but I just haven't been able... I just can't say it because it's too emotional still. You talk about a lot in the book about having to go back and I think... Um, what does the world care? But if, if I think about you as being Australian captain, um, the most amazing thing I saw you do as captain was stand up at his funeral. Um, when you weren't just representing the cricket team anymore, you were representing a whole lot of other things. How you did that, I don't know. How did you do that? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I think... You did it amazingly well, it must be said. I think he would have done the same for my family. Right. And that's probably the way I looked at it. That my number one goal was to look after his family as much as I could, and really, I couldn't look after them at all. They, they, and still are so shattered with what happened, but if I could help in any way, then I saw that as my number one responsibility as a mate. Um, and then I knew I had responsibilities as Australian captain. Um, more to my teammates, I think. It, I know it might have it might have got to the cricketing community, but my focus was probably more on um, my teammates and making sure they understood that I'm one of them and I feel what they're feeling, but it is really important for us to have the courage to walk back out onto the field. Because, mate, it felt like you weren't just speaking for your cricket team or the cricketing community. It felt like you were speaking for the whole country, which is yeah. a massive responsibility. Obviously, it didn't feel like that to you. Yeah. But I probably didn't look that deep, you know. Probably, th- that's how yeah. it came across. Well, I think the game of cricket, you know, I, I've always believed the game is bigger than any individual player mm. and the game stops for no one. But Hughesy changed that. Yeah. The game did stop for Philip Hughes, um, and he would love that too. He'd be bragging about that, like bragging about that, like he would not believe. But <laughs> you know, so my message, I guess, when I say I was talking to my teammates, it, it might have been also to young boys and girls to the fact that um, I didn't, and, and I was saying this, but I wasn't feeling it. So I didn't want boys and girls to be scared to walk back out onto the cricket field because it's the greatest game in the world, in my opinion. And I'm, I know I'm extremely biased, but I wanted them to have the courage to go back out and play cricket. And I was saying it to my teammates, but maybe I meant it to young boys and girls as well. But I wasn't listening to myself. So you were scared when I was, you were going out? I, I, the test match in Adelaide was a different story. I didn't have, a, I didn't have any feeling. Howie, I couldn't feel like I was so emotionally and physically drained that there was no feeling. I didn't feel happiness. I didn't feel sadness. I didn't feel make a hundred. It didn't give me goosebumps like it did every, you know, 27 other times in my international career. I didn't feel anything, which is so hard to describe. Then my, you know, when I played cricket after that, then I felt fear for the first time in my life. And again, I talk about being a kid and being so small. The faster someone bowled, the more I loved it. It was like, okay, it comes faster means it'll come off the bat faster. (laughs) That excited me as a cricketer. After Philip passed away, it scared me as a cricketer that I could now die playing the sport I loved. And even though I tried so hard to get it out of my mind, and I think I did, but I, I believe it stayed in my subconscious, 
and I noticed it every single every single time I put a helmet on my head, I noticed it. We don't have all the time in the world. Um, so where to now? Um, there's so many other things I could talk to you about, but where to now? You've got a beautiful wife, a young child. Yeah. Um, you're doing a great job on the telly. I love listening to you no, in thanks, commentary. So what happens now for the next five, ten years for Michael Clark? Now that you're still having a hit, aren't you? Still, I played a couple of games for my club. Yeah, I'll and go that, back to my we, club. We go yeah. the full circle because yeah. you still love it, don't you? I know. I know. My dad's 63. He's still going. He's still playing. But I definitely won't be playing at 63. Um, Did you tell Gilly once at a Thai restaurant in the West Indies, a young man, you wouldn't be going until you were 30? I told him and Steve Bernard. You I said, told when me that I'm, last night. Actually. When I'm 30, I'll retire. Uh, and they both laughed at me. And again, like I say, experience, knowledge, they knew, they said. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I, I believe as much as I never wanted the captaincy or cared about the captaincy, I think that change, me getting the captaincy changed me. I, I think it it's like having a daughter. It's like I cared more about my teammates making 100 than me making 100. It was such a special feeling. And I think that's what kept me in the game for those last four years. So what now? Uh, well, commentary. I'm going to do some stuff for, for Channel 9 throughout the summer, which I'm, I'm really excited about. How I'm going to go, I have no idea. But um, I've got some, you know, some great people to, to learn and, and watch and follow in, in that commentary box. Uh, I've got my cricket academy that I run in Sydney. So that'll keep me involved in the game with young boys and girls. And How do people get onto that? Uh, on my web, oh, I've got a website, Michael Clark Cricket Academy. People can go and see, and you know it's open to, like I say, boys and girls, and all around Australia and around the world. Um, and then I, you know, I've always had goals and ambitions to get into business, so try and be successful outside of cricket. So I think that's probably at the front of my mind. While I'll stay involved in the game, there's no doubt about it, and, and like I say, do the commentary in the academy. I think I'm going to try and you know dip my toe in the water in a couple of different things uh in regards to business and and try and find a passion like cricket has always been in my life um try and find another passion that i really enjoy and that's what i love so much about the game it would get me out of bed every single day and make me try and become better i now need to try and find another passion that that has gives me that same drive michael congratulations on your book you couldn't have been more generous with your time i hope people listen to this and come away and think gee he sounds like a nice boat because that's the way you've always seemed to me thanks how you're a good man very good kind. On you, mate. thanks buddy Ta. appreciate it thanks to michael clark for being so honest and so open so generous with his time and congratulations to michael for his book my story as i said at the start please check it out thank you all of you for listening for continuing to support the howie games if you haven't subscribed to us please do if you haven't rated us on itunes that would also be fantastic well done to michael james continues to do a magnificent job producing this sort of half-baked idea of mine called the Howie Games. We'll be back with another episode, as always, next Thursday. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.